Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're exploring one of Ramsey Campbell's mythos deities, Glaki, or possibly Glaki, or Glaaki. We'll <laughs> discuss that in the episode. But before we get into all that contentious stuff, what is going on? Well, the Ennies have been announced. Not the winners, but the shortlist, the ones that soon people will be able to vote on. For 2022, for those of you listening in the far future. First of all, congratulations to our good friends at Ain't Slayed Nobody for making the shortlist for podcasts. And we do, if there's still time when you're listening to this, encourage you to vote for them because they're good people. And I believe a few Chaosium or Chaosium-associated or licensed products have also been nominated. Yeah, and a best supplement, there's Cults of Cthulhu, the new Call of Cthulhu book from Chris Lackey and Mike Mason. If you haven't got it yet, it's a great supplement. There's also the uh, Call of Cthulhu classic prop set from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which is up for best non-digital accessory, because, boy, that is as non-digital as it comes, and <laughs> best production value and product of the year, which, yeah, thoroughly deserving. That is a wonderfully jam-packed box set that we got. Finally, from Type 40, there's the Call of Cthulhu 3D digital game of props, their Master and Arthtep product, which is down for best digital accessory. Neat. We endorse all of those, and good luck to them in the Ennies. I understand Scott's been appearing on other podcasts. Yeah, I was interviewed a little while back for a podcast called Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, interviewed by Oliver Brackenbury, who hosts the podcast. This basically is a podcast that interviews a number of people involved with genre fiction who talk about specific aspects of science fiction, fantasy, horror. And they had me on basically to talk about how the Cthulhu mythos has evolved beyond Lovecraft which I found an absolutely fascinating discussion. The episode is apparently going out on the 25th of July, so that is just under a week from the time this episode goes out. And here also, Paul's been making my print collection of books rather happy now with a new appearance up on DriveThruRPG. Yep, Dockside Dogs is now available in print through DriveThruRPG, as you say, Matt. This is my scenario inspired by Tarantino's film Reservoir Dogs. And do you realise that film came out in 1992, 30 years ago? I did, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's... <laughs> I know. That's just, just wrong, isn't it? It was definitely less than 30 years since I first saw it. I doubt that would let me into the cinema at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, probably not, Matt. You were nine. And now on to our main topic, Glarky. This is the latest in our series of discussions of the deities of the Cthulhu mythos. We did look at a couple of Ramsey Campbell's other creations, Daeloth and Ihort, back in episode 222. And this episode, we're exploring probably one of his best-known deities, Glarky. Or Glarky. 
but we'll get to that in a moment. Well, how you pronounce him, Glacky Glarky, is one of Ramsay Campbell's earliest creations. He first appeared in the title of the story of Campbell's debut collection, The Inhabitant of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants. And boy, they don't come less welcome than this guy. <laughs> Published by Arkham House back in 1964. This was written in 1962 when Campbell was just 16. And I'd say it kind of shows when you read it. Hmm. But it's, you know, it's a pretty good story. It was originally titled The Thing in the Lake but renamed as there was an Eleanor Ingram novel of the same name. That suddenly puts the title of a painting that appears later in the story into perspective because it would have had a more resonant title if it had shared the title with the story. Yeah. Reading back over this, the prose was a lot better than I remembered. Certainly a lot better than you'd expect someone to have written at the age of 16. It's still definitely rough. It's a Lovecraft pastiche and it's... Hmm. Nowhere near as compelling on any level as a lot of Campbell's later stuff, but there's still a lot of good material in here, a lot of good ideas, which we'll dig into. And one of the other things that this story spawned was the Revelations of Glarkey, which is a mythos tome which appears throughout Campbell's mythos work. But going back to the idea about the pronunciation, Campbell changed the spelling of Glarky or Glarky after this story was published. So initially, we've got Glarky as it is here, where there's no apostrophe in it. It's spelled G-L-A-A-K-I. But then in his later works, he's put an apostrophe in the middle of it. So it becomes Glarky. And he did actually lampshade this a bit in his more recent novella, The Last Revelations of Glarkey, saying that the author of the most commonly known versions, The Revelations, dropped the apostrophe from the name to make for ease of reading. And he was saying it too. Which do we favour here? Do we want that apostrophe there or not? Without, by far without. You favour without. I like the look of it with it. I still say Glarky because that's what I've always called it, but mm. I kind of like, like the look of having the apostrophe in it. I don't find it makes it less or more easy to read, but it does make it more questionable on how you pronounce it. In the uh, Call of Cthulhu Keeper rulebook, there's a guide to pronunciation of various mythos names, and that's just their interpretation, obviously. But they have glar with the emphasis on the first syllable glar aki glar aki in the story as we'll encounter a bit later one of the characters makes reference to how it's pronounced and it spells it phonetically in the story is g-l-a-r-k-y glarky yeah obviously that is someone picking it up secondhand from someone else's mad ramblings Personally, I like the look of the version with the apostrophe. That's the way that I'd write it normally. I'd probably still pronounce it Glarky, though. <laughs> we can't agree on how to say scone or scone. I mean, some people say scone and some wrong-headed people say scone. But, I mean, you know, it's just not something we can decide on. Or if you're talking about the stone, it's scone. Or in either case, I've eaten it by the time you've had the fucking debate, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've eaten the stone. <laughs> There are many Lovecraft influences in The Inhabitants of the Lake. Campbell credits his inspiration to an entry about a haunted lake in Lovecraft's commonplace book, where he states, around entry 150, 
visit to somewhere in wild and remote house, ride from station through the night into the haunted hills, house by forest or water, terrible things live there. Now, I must say in my researches that I made the assumption that was the entry, because I did go through Lovecraft's commonplace book trying to identify which entry Campbell might have been talking about, and that was the one that seemed to fit the best. But I could actually be wrong. I mean, reading the story, it knowing that he's influenced by Lovecraft, it feels like a mashup of elements from Colour Out of Space and Call of Cthulhu. You've got a thing on a meteor coming down to Earth. You've got an entity in an underground kind of city type, underwater, sorry, type city, sending dreams to people. You've got this weird coloured disease that it affects people with. That's what it struck me as a mashup of. But that may not be his conscious uh, intention. Plus, you've got this morbid artist who is very Pikmin-esque. And I'd say some of the structure of it as well has echoes of the Whisper in Darkness. So, yeah, mm. you can see a lot of Lovecraft all the way through this. Despite superficial similarities to Cthulhu, Campbell's fiction does not describe Glarkey as a great old one. His appearance on Earth appears to be entirely voluntary. He came here on a comet and has dwelt within the lake at Deepfall Water ever since. Well, travelling around on a comet and smashing into planets doesn't seem the best mode of travel to me, but, you know, <laughs> it works for him. Who, can, who am I to judge? Better than British Rail, so... After last week of getting to and from Expo, I would agree, Matt, yes. <laughs> but normally I'm happy with them. You do realise British Rail hasn't existed for 30 years. It's rail and it's in this country, is British Rail. And now let's take a look at The Inhabitant of the Lake. The Inhabitant of the Lake takes place in and around Woodland in Campbell's Seven Valleys setting in Gloucestershire, near the outskirts of Bridgechester. Our narrator, Alan Curie, is friends with Tom Cartwright, a morbid artist whose work is filled with alien horrors. Cartwright buys this abandoned house on the edge of the lake for £500 to convert it into a studio. £500. He paid £500 for a house. Mm. This is 1960. Yeah. But still. Yeah, it does seem mind-boggling. That's the real sanity role right there for anybody <laughs> living in the modern day. Which I'd suspect is most of us. Well, possibly. Oh, some people listening to this are living in the future, Scott. And, of course, there are the Ithians. Actually, everybody listening to it is living in the future. The house is just one in a row of abandoned houses along the lakeside, dating back to the late 18th century. The previous owners fled in terror. Not that it's setting the scene at all there. <laughs> Cartwright hopes that if the house is haunted, this will offer inspiration. Spot the Cthulhu investigator here. <laughs> Almost immediately, Cartwright has nightmares about the locale. One dream involves a stone in the woods, glowing with blue light, inscribed with the name, well, it's spelled Foss Lee the abbreviation for Thomas Lee. There are more such stones, and Cartwright sees one open and a skeletal hand emerge. He does describe these stones, and they are kind of rectangular 
boxes about the kind of size and scale of sarcophagi, I would say. Is that the right word? Yes, mainly because they are sarcophagi. <laughs> well, they are, right, but, you know. <laughs> Spoilers. But he literally gives the measurements of them in the story. Almost as soon as Cartwright wakes up from this dream, he falls asleep and has another one. And in this one, he is taken prisoner and dragged to the edge of the lake. An eye rose above the surface and stared moistly at me. Two others followed it, and, worst of all, none of them was in a face. When the body heaved up behind them, I shut my eyes and shrieked for help. Then I felt a tearing pain in my chest, neutralised by a numbness which spread through my whole body, and I regarded the object I had seen rising from the lake with no horror whatever. I love that an eye can stare moistly at someone. <laughs> that is such a wonderful description. I think it would be more disturbing if it stared dryly. Need eye drops then. Hmm. <sighs> Well, he's underwater all the time. He doesn't need eye drops. Cartwright questions the estate agent, learning that the houses were built in 1790 by a private group cult, 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 <laughs> who all disappeared in 1860. So they were around for a fair while. Uh, yeah. The agent also mentions that the previous owner muttered weird things when arranging to sell the house. A lot of stuff about the spines and you lose your will and become part of it. And he went on a lot about the city among the weeds. Somebody had to keep the boxes in the daytime because of the green decay. He kept mentioning someone called Glarky or something like that. Insert pronunciation discussion here. <laughs> so clearly estate agents have a very high sanity rating and they're like <laughs> immune to any of this nonsense. Either that or they're all on zero sand anyway, and it just doesn't affect them. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Do you do find out that at least the poor estate agent gets his uh, reward for all that knowledge later <sighs> in the scenario? But that whole thing about them disappearing a little over 60 years later, all right, 70 years, but they obviously had to do a bit of cult stuff around the lake first, that 60 years does become significant. The estate agent then helpfully adds some local folklore. As estate agents do, <laughs> they love doing that. Well, they say that the lake was caused by the fall of a meteor. Centuries ago, the meteor was wandering through space, and on it there was a city. The beings of the city all died with the passage through space, but something in that city still lived. Something that guided the meteor to some sort of landing from its home deep under the surface. How does the bloody estate agent know all this shit? I mean, he's I supposed don't. to be telling you about, you know, the the lovely entrance way and how it takes you through to the house and how this bedroom is plenty big enough for a bedroom. You know, I don't know all that nonsense they speak. I've talked to a few estate agents, looked around quite a few properties. I've never had one talk about meteors falling from space. <laughs> This is taking inspiration from Lovecraft and how many of his characters have read the Necronomicon, for heaven's sake? Yeah, but this is just like local folklore. And I love the detail of this local folklore in Britchester because it obviously speaks a lot about the kind of place Britchester is, that people just casually talk about, oh yeah, well, there was this meteor that was wandering through space and on it there was a city. Okay. 
I can see that, like, oh, yeah, a meteor fell out there and caused that, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever. Fine. I can buy that. The whole city thing. Yeah. Mm. That's weird. It is. Thomas Lee was the leader of this private group, and they are supposed to have met with more than they expected at the lake. They became servants of what they awoke, and people say they're there yet. Exploring the other houses, Cartwright finds a page from a book that talks about how they can't come out in the daytime, the green decay would appear on them, and that would be rather unpleasant. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> and suggests proof can be found in the cellar, because no one keeps anything in the brightly lit upstairs room. They always have to keep stuff in the <laughs> cellar. So strange beings that, that sort of shamble around in the darkness and don't come out in the daylight. How are you doing anyway, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's just gamers. That's all it is. Am I right in remembering that the green decay comes originally from Clark Ash and Smith? Is that right? Oh, it's not from this story. No, I seem to remember Campbell borrowed this from another mythos writer. Right, I didn't know that. I want to say it was either Clark Ashton Smith or Lynn Carter, but it was in a different context. I seem to remember that it was like a curse. Yeah, I mean, the, the Green Decay, the spell in Call of Cthulhu is sort of played that way. It's like a curse you put on somebody. A little last-minute insert here. After some research, it turns out that the green decay actually originates from a story called The Man of Stone by Hazel Heald, revised by one H.P. Lovecraft. In it, the green decay is a curse that the protagonist uncovers while looking through the Book of Ibon, looking for curses. He says, The green decay looks promising. But that would be a bit unpleasant for me as well as for them. I don't like certain sights and smells. The cellar holds nine volumes of The Revelation of Glarkey, a handwritten tome. This provides us with our biggest info dump yet. The cult worships something which lives in the lake. There's no description of the being. It was made out of some living iridescent metal as far as i can make out but there are no actual pictures there are numerous references to the sentient spines that would be a great band name it would i mean maybe it is who knows and no pictures i mean it's a handwritten book i mean i suppose you could have a hand-drawn illustration but uh yeah mm. In the initiation ceremony, the novice was held, sometimes willing, sometimes not, on the lakeshore, while Glarky rose from the depths. It would drive one of its spines into the chest of the victim, and when a fluid had been ejected into the body, the spine detached itself from the body of Glarky. If the victim had been able to snap the spine before the fluid entered his body, he would at least have died a human being. But of course his captors didn't allow that. Through the emission of impulses, perhaps magnetic from the brain of Glarky, the man was kept alive while he was controlled almost completely by the being. He acquired all its memories. He became 
also a part of it, though he was capable of performing minor individual actions, such as writing the revelations, when Glarkey was not emitting specific impulses. After about 60 years of this half-life, the green decay would set in if the body was exposed to too intense light. Well, at least they're a cult that like having injections. (laughs) (laughs) The book also mentions heretics who insist that the spines can be found buried in certain Egyptian mummies and say that Glarki came before through the reversed angles of something unpronounceable, the (laughs) Targlatur, which the priests of Sebek and Karnak knew. I guess this is the first hint that we get, and this is explored much more in Campbell's later story, The Last Revelation of Glarkey, that Glarkey isn't in fact tied to this lake. It may be where he landed, but he does get around. Also, phrase hybrid Egyptian mummies. <laughs> is that strange? It seems strange to me. You like getting, I don't know, somebody breeding Egyptian mummies selectively? Well, I wonder whether it's a reference to Robert Bloch, because Bloch wrote all these Egyptian mythos tales in which there were these mummies that had human and animal features. Some of them were tied in with Bast, which he presented as being this sort of undead monstrosity. And there were these these mummies that I think were in her thrall that had human and animal aspects. So, yeah, it could be related to that. It could be. Evidently, a bit of inspiration there went on into the um, necropolis. Indeed. Glarkey is said to use the dream pull to lure victims. He is weakened, however, by a lack of recent initiations, and his dreams cannot reach far. Which, again, is picked up on and turned into something far stranger and weirder in The Last Revelation of Glarkey. Later, Kearney receives a panicked phone call from Cartwright, who believes undead cultists have sabotaged his car. We've all been there. Yeah. Cartwright asks Kearney to help him retrieve the revelations of Glarkey from the house, which he's fled. Again, spot the decent investigator. Not so much worried about his own life, but worried about the books. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if my car was going to be, like, sabotaged, would I prefer it was done by cultists or undead cultists which would be preferable i'm not fussy you're not Uh. well if they did a good impression of romero and were just shambling around the place i'd rather have something i might have the chance to outrun even in my fragile state yeah i'd I'd go with the undead they seem an easier uh, foe perhaps. They could also announce their presence by just chanting, brains! (laughs) It just says undead, though. They could be like vampires. Hmm. The pedant in me wants to point out that Romero zombies never did that. That's something that came in far later with the return of the living dead. And much more comedy-infused, yeah. Cartwright mentions half-dreaming of being watched from his window by the dead face of his friend, Joe Bolger, and realises the cult must have got to him. While they pack up the books, Cartwright shows Kearney a photograph hidden in one volume. From an oval body protruded countless thin, pointed spines of multicoloured metal. At the more rounded end of the oval, a circular, thick-lipped mouth formed the centre of a spongy face. 
from which rose three yellow eyes on thin stalks. Around the underside of the body were many white pyramids, presumably used for locomotion. The diameter of the body must have been about ten feet at its least width. Yeah, so basically it's a porcupine slug. Made of metal. Well, the spines are metal, yeah. But that detail with the underside of the body being covered with these white pyramids presumably used for locomotion, that is a weird detail. I can't really imagine how that works. No, I kind of pictured it almost a bit like the underside of a starfish, that these things kind of writhed and wobbled in waves, and that that's how it propelled itself forward. Maybe. Either that or it's just pyramid power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the two men find Kearney's car has been sabotaged as well, and realise that the newly dead Joe Bulger can move by daylight without the green decay affecting him because they've been doing all this in the daylight, thinking they were safe from the undead. But no, no, they're only safe from the old undead. Then they hear a splashing sound and an alien throbbing cry coming from the lake. Cartwright takes this opportunity to mention that earlier he did see something weird in the lake because he happened to look at it from just the right angle. There's a city down there. All black spiralling steeples and walls at obtuse angles with the streets. Dead things lying in the streets. They died with the journey through space. They're horrible, hard, shiny, all red, but covered with bunches of trumpet-shaped things. And right at the centre of the city is a transparent trapdoor. Glark is under there, pulsing and staring up. I saw the eye stalks move towards me. That reminds me of an old, I think it's 1980s claymation cartoon in the UK called Trapdoor. <laughs> There's something down there. And that passage just reminds me of that. There is indeed something down there. Was the trapdoor transparent? Oh, no, no. It was made of wood, but there is indeed something down there that is quite undescribable. <laughs> Excellent. With nightfall come Glarky and his undead servants. The living corpses proved no match for Cartwright armed with a hatchet. But in the melee, Cartwright runs onto one of Clarky's spines. He quickly severs it, allowing him to die. Still a human! This is what happens when you go with fighting axe, which starts with a 15% base skill. Mm. You better just <laughs> running in with a baseball bat or something a bit more sturdy, rather than thinking, oh, I can use this thing. No, no, you can't. Yeah, but the fact that he ran onto the spike like that does make it sound like he fumbled, so it probably wouldn't have helped either way. But importantly, he severs the spike quickly. Yes. This is important. Mm -hmm. And later, following the aftermath and the police investigation, scientists from the local university examined the spine retrieved from Cartwright's body. The case was hushed up in the newspapers, and while the professors have not yet got a permit to fill the lake in, they agree with me that something very strange happened that night in the hollow. For the spine, with its central orifice running through it, was not only formed of a metal completely unknown on this planet, that metal had recently been composed of living cells. It's a revelation I don't find particularly chilling. No. Weird, yes. But... Kind of weird, yeah. 
Especially when they said earlier that it was a living iridescent metal. It's like, oh, you're just repeating what you said previously. Whoa, scary. And also there's that echo of the color out of space there as well, where he's talking about the scientists wanting to take action against the lake and fill it in. Hmm. Like in the color out of space where they're trying to stop the dam being built and the valley being flooded. Yeah, from the reservoir. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't want to drink Clarky water. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It'd have a nice metallic tang to it. It would. So now let's delve into Campbell's story, The Last Revelation of Glarkey. Campbell has revisited Glarkey in this newer novella called The Last Revelation of Glarkey. We won't go into that in anywhere near the same detail. I mean, partly because it's quite a long story, partly because it goes into all sorts of other areas that don't necessarily tie in with Glarkey as a god. We will, I think, talk about it a bit more in our next episode, where we're talking about the revelations of Glarkey and Golanak. But in this case, what I figured it would be more interesting to do would be to offer a few choice quotations from that story that are taken from the revelations of Glarkey as a book within the story, or at least people talking about it, that further spell out what Glarkey is as an entity and what he can do, and what his followers can do. This thing certainly is a nightmare for book collectors such as myself, because there's so many different editions, whether it has 9, 11, 12, 56 mm -hmm. different volumes. It's, it's all a bit crazy. Oh, and they're all different as well. But let's get into that next time, because The Revelations of Glarkius, a mythos tome, is just fascinating. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. But while it does stem from Glarkey, it's also something quite different. The version of Glarkey presented in this book is more powerful and disturbing. He is able to transform his followers, warp reality, and move wherever he pleases. Boy, did he get one hell of an XP bump. <laughs> and when I say transform his followers, it's not just by ramming his spines into them, but it seems like the worship and the understanding of Glarkey, just kind of exposure to him and his revelations, is transformative in itself and in a very different way than we see the undead entities in The Inhabitant of the Lake. These are more... I don't know how you describe them. There's elements, I guess, of deep ones, but they're these sort of spongy, malformed people whose bodily proportions are all out of whack, whose limbs and heads and so on and features all seem to be either too large or too small in some combination, whose fingers seem to be rubbery and bent in the wrong ways, who don't have fingernails and don't have hair, and are just rather odd-looking. That reminds me, I'm going to Bletchley tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> the Ancient Ones are not restricted to their lairs, since a simple thought of them may summon them to seep through the very substance of the world. As Glarkey came to know the minds of men, so he ceased to need to bind them physically to him. We're getting the pronoun him now rather than it. 
So this makes Glarky almost like a meme that you'd no longer have to have these spikes rammed through you, that it just seems like knowledge of him or psychic contact with him is enough to affect some kind of change. Mm. Which makes him a very different entity to what's described in The Inhabitant of the Lake. Speak of the Glarky and he shall appear. Mm. Glarky travelled through space for some time before arriving on Earth. The revelations told us how Glarky roamed the universe, the annotations said. His great mind guided the vessel, but even he could not revive the denizens of the dead city which formed its carapace. The city and its secrets far older than humanity were destroyed as the vessel fell to our Earth. There's a way to taunt the seekers of arcane knowledge, saying, oh, it's all gone. Damn it. Yeah, there's also a hint in the book as well that there's something very weird about the Seven Valley that predates all this and that the meteor was actually drawn to it. Hmm. Glarky's ability to reshape reality through dreams is spelt out in a couple of passages from the Revelations. The disciples of Glarky have described the dead city which lies in the depths of deep fall water, yet none of his evangelists have understood the greater wonder. What is the apparition of the vanished city but a token of his power to shape his domain through his dreams? While Cthulhu makes himself known to men through their dreams, Glarki fastens on their minds so as to make their dreams his own and shape them to his will. That makes him almost like a psychic parasite, doesn't it? He's making contact with people's dreams, reshaping them, reshaping their minds, reshaping the world. And, yeah, that is really quite creepy. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you kind of think what that sentence means, yeah. It's like he's not sending them a dream, he's um, kind of co-opting their dreams. Mm. It seems that the purpose of the revelations is to train mages to be Glarky's instruments. The grimoire is a tool for the unmaking of the world. What are these volumes save a nexus of ancient power? Happy the land which is bounded by them, for it should be irradiated and transformed. Happy the denizens of that land, for they shall renew the oldest ways of shaping, when all that live partook of a single creation. More powerful still is the mage through whom the old words find their voice, and happiest is he whose lips Glarky used to address the world. Wherever he is heard, he shall manifest himself to his worshippers. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's very much, you know, he's sort of empowering mages to carry out his will. Yeah, and almost be like beacons or something, you know, mm. allowing him to transmit himself or transmit the idea of himself to a larger audience and affect and transform more people. And also, just as an aside, that section I assume was a very deliberate echo of that bit from the festival where it talks about, what is it, happy is the land whose wizards are all dead or something like that. Yeah, something to that effect, yeah. So from all these bits in the fiction, particularly from The Last Revelation of Glarky, it does seem like Glarky is a very different entity than we initially see him presented as in Call of Cthulhu, because that version is taken, I think, very much from the inhabitant of the lake. 
But based on the presentation here, what do we make of Glarky as an entity? My immediate reaction is, because I've not read The Last Revelation of Glarky yet, but it seems a bit of too much of a wild departure for my liking, that it's almost it should be an entirely different entity. It does seem like a definite change or sort of reinterpretation, but I guess if it were written by a different author, you'd just sort of say, okay, well, he's taken a different angle on that entity. But it's the same author, but, you know, fair enough. They've taken a different angle on their own creation. I, I quite like it, yeah. I certainly find Glucky 2.0 to be much creepier. I do like the whole ramming spines through people and turning them into undead monstrosities aspect of the original Glarky. But this one as this sort of dream parasite reshaping realities is just so much more, well, creepy for a start, but it's it's the kind of thing I think you could do a lot more with. The problem with Glucky, as he's originally presented, I think, is that like a lot of Campbell's creations, it's very focused. It is very much, here's this one story setting, this one set of things that it does, and trying to come up with new and interesting ways of reinterpreting that and presenting it in a different way than it was presented in the story is quite difficult. You fall into the trap sometimes of just rehashing what's there. But this, I think, gives you a lot more scope to just do weird, creative things. Hmm. Shall we take a look at how Glarky appears in Call of Cthulhu? It's very much modelled on the 1.0 version, I'd say, that everything that's described in the Malice Monstorum pretty much follows everything that you see in The Inhabitant of the Lake. There's a couple of additional bits in there that kind of help to explain how he, it, moves between different bodies of water over the world. But otherwise, it's pretty faithful to the original story, I think. Hmm. That, again, is something that comes out of the last revelation of Glarky. He still seems to be connected to water in that, though in this case it's the seaside. But when he manifests outside water, he seems to be accompanied by this sort of greyish moist fog, and it's almost like he's bringing the essence of the lake with him. But he's certainly not tied to the water in any way. The only other thing that's in there, which I'm not sure if it's kind of inspired by my amidst the ancient trees or whether it comes from somewhere else is about the shards of the crystal prison that keep him here that potentially there's cults that are active to try and find those other shards and destroy them or bring them back to Glarky. Mm. again i'm not sure if that's directly from my work or if it's something else that's not in the story i mean the story mentions that crystal trapdoor but that's very much not a prison in campbell's fiction particularly in the last revelation of Glarky, there's no indication that Glarky is imprisoned in any way. He seems to be an absolutely free agent. I think that's a pretty cool addition, the whole crystal thing that you'd got in Amidst the Ancient Trees. Mm. I mean, looking at Call of Cthulhu, we've got Glarky in the Keeper rulebook and appearing again in Malleus Monstrorum. We've also got the Servants of Glarky, again, in the Keeper rulebook. And the Servants of Glarky... They're kind of slow. They've got a low dexterity, 15 dex, but a very high con, 105 con. Mm. 
they operate as more or less kind of human servants and obviously they're vulnerable to the green decay if once they reach a certain age of certain vintage we also get an avatar of Glarkey appears in i won't say which one but in i mean if you read the titles of the scenarios in the book i think it's going to be pretty obvious indoors to darkness <laughs> in the calcium collection of intro scenarios for call of cthulhu and the avatar of Glarkey is yeah more or less a a kind of lesser version of the full price Glarkey, if you like. <laughs> a budget Glarkey. There is an alternate name provided for the servants of Glarkey in the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, formerly the Encyclopedia Cthuliana. Oh, yes. Mm. Which calls them Glarkeen. Oh. Which, yeah, the entry is just undead servants created by Glarkey. See Glarkey. Yes, I think, Paul, when you and I played that particular scenario, we... Uh, short-circuited so much of it that we never actually encountered that avatar i think we all just died in gunfire and and flames before we got to that stage yeah shit caught fire and uh we all ran around madly that was fun <laughs> <laughs> if in doubt burn it down you can't really burn a lake down but you know but you can try you can try And now let's take a look at how we might use Glarkey in our own games. Well, I mean, some of us have, as we've already discussed, <laughs> Mr. Sanderson, in the core rulebook. Indeed, yeah. Amidst the Ancient Trees was very much a kind of a homage to the, the inhabitant of the lake, inspired by walking around, as I used to do, where of my old, well, not my old job, where the company was previously based because the company moved, was down by a lake down in uh, Coldicott on the south side of Milton Keynes. Right. Which I used to go sailing on the North Lake, but I used to go walk around the South Lake at lunchtimes. The idea came to me as I was walking around there, wouldn't it be nice to do something about a a lake in the middle of this dense forest? And then thought, oh yeah, I know a monster that lives in a lake. That guy I read about in Cold Print. Wouldn't it be nice if this big thing emerged from the water and stabbed me through the chest with a metal spike? <laughs> It'd get me out of doing call centre work, so I'd be very happy for that. Yeah, that's a dilemma. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the first time I'd really encountered Glarkey. I, I mean, I had read the story before, but it didn't really stand out in my memory too much. So playing that adventure for the first time, yeah, that was pretty cool. I remember we, we did the play test around the cottage, the three of us with Lucy. And yeah, I think it was a good use of Glarkey. I remember Scott triumphantly uh, stabbing one of the NPCs in the prison cell afterwards and then sat there with everyone else rushing in, kind of horrified look on their faces and saying, don't worry, we'll get up again in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and it features everything. It's got the green decay. It's got the sarcophagi. It's got Garky. It's got the spines. Um, artists. Art, yes, artists. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of incorporated like the whole thing and then you take. I'll have to run that again sometime soon now. Well, if you play Call of Cthulhu, you've almost certainly got the Keeper rulebook and spoilers, but uh, that one does feature Glarkey. I think it's too late to offer a spoiler warning now with you spoiling it for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Any other scenarios that feature Glarkey? Not that I'm aware of, but I mean, I'm sure there are. The only other place I can think of that he appears really in any kind of detail in any Call of Cthulhu material is Goatswood and Less Pleasant Places. Right. There might be, from memory, I think there is a, a Glarkey scenario in there, because there's one pretty much for all the major gods in that collection. Unsurprisingly, being a work that's pretty much inspired solely by Campbell. Hmm. But I can't think of any others. There's other games which use him, but no other Call of Cthulhu material I can think of. 
I guess part of the reason for that is, as he's presented in the original scenario, there's only so much you can do with that presentation. You can reinvent the story, as you did, Matt, but departing from it in major ways is comparatively difficult. I was having a think about how I might do that, and the thing that stuck with me was these scientists grabbing hold of this spine afterwards. If people started trying to get an understanding of what they had there, both with the spine and the fluid that it transmitted, what people might do with that, the fluid that runs through his spines seems to do two major things. One is it transforms people into the undead, so it might be used as a way of someone trying to survive death. Mm. But obviously that's going to end up carrying great risks with it because the other thing that it does is it creates a connection to Glarky and his other followers and you sort of lose yourself in that. And I sort of wondered for a start whether you could have this reclusive Howard Hughes-type billionaire living as far away from bodies of water as he could, maybe in this house in the desert or something like that, just topping himself up with regular extracts of, of glarky fluid, trying to keep his mind his own while keeping away from sunlight and stopping himself decaying, just basically becoming almost this lich living out in the middle of nowhere. But on the other hand, you might have people who want to almost microdose with the fluid as a way of just briefly contacting Glarky and his other followers. There's the indication in The Inhabitant of the Lake that the revelations of Glarky were written by people who'd been transformed by mm. Glarky. And so in those moments when they reclaim their humanity, they are then able to transcribe the weird mythos knowledge that they've picked up from being connected to the mind of this god. I can see that being really attractive to seekers after knowledge, that if you could perhaps expose yourself to limited amounts of that and just make brief connections with Glarky, then you could learn all sorts of strange and terrible things. I can see the scientists getting hold of this drug, which they do, and maybe isolating the active ingredients mm. and using the in inverted commas, life-giving properties, the life-extending part, yeah. and kind of making the most of that, whilst having isolated out, apparently, the glarky bit. Obviously, that's not going to work. <laughs> Either they're not aware of that, or they, they think they've fixed that. And then, particularly, I don't know, it's, it's seeming particularly like a pulp thing to me. That could have a big influence on a, on a wide swathe of people then if they then put that drug into production because mm. they're going to elongate people's lives and a bit of de green decay well as long as you stay out of sunlight you know you put your factor 50 on <laughs> maybe factor 200 and just keep out of the sun you'll be fine and then we suddenly get you know as we were talking about the subtle manifestations of glarky coming through so you wouldn't have to be having that whole aspect of taking people to the lake that motif, you know, you can only use that, like you say, Scott, so many times. It's good, but you don't want to overuse it. So I think there's perhaps the drug itself, and also there's the the servants. I think you can do a mm. lot with the servants, particularly with the last revelations of Glarky, where they're becoming more like wizards 
mages that, that can exercise power and exercise they're a kind of a conduit for Glarkis power if you like in the world mm. and what powers they've got that can be elaborated upon you've got all these mages but the way to defeat them might be to go and like deal with Glarki ultimately yeah particularly seeing as is sort of working by tapping into people's dreams and re-shaping uh, reality through dreams. You could even tie that into a dreamland scenario yeah. and go full nightmare on Elm Street, the dream warriors, with uh, <laughs> investigators going to the dreamlands to try to combat this wizard of Glacky. Ultimately, your investigators, they find out that it's this thing in the lake and the chant becomes, drain the lake. <sighs> Sorry. But um <laughs> Actually there is one thing that I remember that from um Master Storm that does elaborate a little bit from the story. And that is the creation of the servants. In the story, remember they said if you snap the spine before you get injected that you can just die a regular death. That's different in Call of Cthulhu. That if you are stabbed with one of these spines and you break it before the fluid's injected there's a 50% chance that you could die from the wound and become undead, but not under Glacky's control. Oh. Mm. But at that point, Glacky's kind of, hey, you, you're not supposed to run away from me, and sends the servants after them. So you potentially got uh, servant on servant, or rather servant on undead action, as you've got wow. the servants being dispatched to go and find these rogue, not quite converted undead freaks that are running around. That's a pretty cool option because then you can end up playing an undead investigator. Mm -hmm. And also, if Glarky is sending his servants out to deal with those who've been partially transformed, if you do have this drug out there and people are using it to extend their lives, you know, Glarky's then getting a bit pissed off with this and sending his servants out to try to deal with those. Mm -hmm. I was wondering as well with the drug whether you could play it that you have some unethical mad scientist type who is trying to develop a safe version of this but doesn't want to experiment on himself and is just kind of slipping it to unsuspecting people like investigators who suddenly find themselves becoming strangely sensitive to some light and becoming pursued by these shambling undead monstrosities who only travel by night unethical, covert drug test being conducted on an unsuspecting public, MK Cthulhu rather than MK Ultra. <laughs> I was thinking David Icke, but yeah. There's been enough of that kind of stuff that's happened for real. Yeah, no, exactly. Go and get your vaccines, people. They don't <laughs> contain any glarky serum. Oh, God, I'm going to have to cut that, Paul. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I said they don't contain any glarky serum. They don't. Go and get your vaccines. Don't believe the hype about all the, the glarky influence. And you certainly don't get 5G coverage, which I'm most annoyed at and about. Yeah. The spines would be great for that. It's like having an aerial built into you. Well, they are made of metal. <sighs> One last thing that I thought might be an interesting setup here would be the whole cult aspect of glarky where you do have these transformed undead worshippers which is if people mistake some of that particularly for people who are recently dead as just being like a normal cult 
whether you could have a scenario where you've got a small team of cult deprogrammers, say in the 1970s, who've managed to snatch this person out of this Galaki cult on behalf of their family and try to deprogram them, and is just trying to reconcile the fact that this person seems to be dead, but that can't be right. Hmm. Not only have they got to deprogram them, they've also got to place a call to Herbert West. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to enter your dreams and offer you thanks of First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Thanks going out to Targrad. And also thank you much to Jim Calabrese. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named The Angry Piper. And thanks to Dominic Allen, who uh, I saw again at Expo. And I'm still trying to persuade to bring his wonderful performance of Lovecraft's life to a convention at some point. He's an actor, him and his friend Simon, who put on a great show at the Edinburgh Fringe the other year. And he's also part of the Apocalypse Players, who are a new actual play podcast, who've been doing some very cool Call of Cthulhu stuff. They're all actors, and what they've been doing is fantastic. Not that Dom's involved with this particular one, but they've been doing a run-through of my scenario Unland from Fear Sharp Little Needles recently, that is one of the weirdest fucking things I've ever heard. She's gone so completely into left field that I'm not even sure what i'm listening to anymore but i do like it <laughs> i thoroughly enjoyed their run through of satinine chalice because boy some of their pcs are completely messed up <laughs> and also thank you very much goes out to scott core and thank you finally to kyle maxwell and if you are enjoying the good friends of jackson elias please do let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where people downloading podcasts might find it whether this means mentioning it to people on social media or whether you're going to exercise your own dream pool then we'd be grateful however you do it you can always threaten them with taking them down to a lake if they don't listen <laughs> We do not advocate ramming spines through any of our potential listeners, thanks. No matter how well-intentioned. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.